0: and we're on. All right, welcome everybody back to uh, having lunch. Uh, So for Zach and I, this is going to be the uh, second episode we're recording today uh, because as we noted in the last one, we're gonna try and do a bit more condensed episodes, try and fit everything uh, within an hour, maybe hour and a half maximum, uh, just so it's a a bit more digestible. Uh, The topic that we're gonna be addressing today um, is something pretty different. Uh, it's the idea of creating a new social currency. Uh, it's something that uh, for me kind of has been floating around uh, you know in, in my mind for quite a while uh, but I never really had the impetus to like sit down and try and flesh out uh, what the idea would be, how it would work uh, you know what problems it is addressing what problems is it actually going to solve what might some of the complications be and over the past couple of weeks um, you know I've had the chance you know, while at home during quarantine to really take a bit of a deeper look at it, um, find some more statistics and information that maybe could back me up uh, and start kind of fleshing out a proposal. And I thought uh, before I have it fully fleshed out, um, because I don't right now, uh, it would be important to kind of bounce it off someone. And I couldn't think of a better person than Zach to bounce it off of. And I, I hope you guys will all uh, enjoy the upcoming conversation. I think the only other note I should make is that I haven't told him anything about it yet. Uh, yeah. So he's blindly agreed uh to join in on this conversation um and so he, like all of you listeners um don't know anything about this idea, and I think that will only make it that much more interesting uh so yeah so and we're doing we're doing this so that way uh
1: hopefully I'll be able to ask like a lot of the questions that people who are listening would have about the concept, and that way the whole thing might be like a little bit more uh like palatable or easy to understand because like i'm coming from a place right now of total ignorance about these concepts so we'll we'll see we'll see where we get
0: (laughs) and moreover uh you know there are likely to be questions or or comments that zach makes that i don't have a full answer to or think of an answer to on the spot um and we'll hopefully try and like flesh some of the things out um or like think through some some potential issues um kind of on the fly here which i think could be a cool. Uh, experience, but uh, you know, with that, I'm 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 glad and ready to jump in. Uh, if you are, yeah, let's we'll do it. Cool. So you know, the the topic is the creation of a social currency, but I think we can't really talk about what that means or what it would do unless we talk about what what the problems are that it's um, you know going to be addressing, uh, and really what the predicament uh, of our country is today. So. Um, as I mentioned a couple episodes ago, um, I think that late-stage capitalism in America is failing, um, and it's failing pretty damn badly. No, it's not failing so badly uh, for those of for those of us the the thirty-some odd percent of people who uh, can go to college, and even for like the people who get to go to you know elite colleges, it's, it's not really failing that much at all, right? Like there are pretty uh, uh, Path, they're pretty designed well designed paths, um, like you know management consulting or law or medicine or investment banking, where like you can kind of you know follow a specific set of things and then make a lot of money, move to the suburbs, raise a family and like the whole thing is going pretty well um, there's like an yeah, engineered
1: that was... system that's meant to benefit like uh, a specific group of people and it's kind of self reinforcing Have you ever played the card game president yes yeah, yeah it's a bit like that where it's like So the idea behind that game is uh, if someone wins the round, they become president, and then the next round, they get to take two cards from the person who's in the worst position. So that way it just makes – it puts the president, the top level, at a specific advantage and disadvantages the bottom level in a way that uh, is just – it's a self-reinforcing cycle.
0: Yeah, that's that's a really cool way of looking at it, and I think it is extremely apt. Like, we are in the situation where if you're wealthy – um and we'll talk about this later but if you're in a two-parent household where both people have college degrees um you're very likely to also go on and get a college degree and make a lot of money and have a two-parent household and send your kids to college and all of that is good whereas on the flip side um you know if you're from kind of a single parent household or from a uh, uh, parents that are less educated, you are extremely likely to also grow up and not be educated, less likely to finish high school, more likely to be, you know, arrested, have lower income, and all these types of things. But we basically have a system where there's a pretty stacked deck, um, and for a whole lot of people, even though you know, in theory, we're in the wealthiest country in the history of the world, there's a whole lot of people who are in a really bad uh, situation. Now, you know, we could kind of run through a litany of statistics about the percent of Americans that, uh, you know, don't have, that don't have enough, um, you know, money for an emergency, um, about the the percent of Americans who have tremendous amounts of debt. Um, These are just like major, major problems. But I think some of the ways that we can kind of see these problems in action is actually looking at um, how they manifest themselves politically. So I think, you know, you can look at uh, the emergence of like, the phenom- like radical phenomena like, you know, Trumpism and, and Bernie Sanders, which you would think would be almost unthinkable, you know, 10 to 20 years ago. And, and when I say radical, I don't mean to, you know, condone uh, or, or, or really make any type of value judgment onto any of these ideologies, just that they're radical in that the styles. Uh, it's the polarization. Content.
1: It's, it's moving. It's, it's the right moving more right. And the left moving more left. We're move- where there's, there's been an elimination of moderation in uh, modern United States politics.
0: Yeah, well, well that, that certainly is true as well. And also, there's just been all, the, the prominent political ideologies are, th- those two in particular, are radically different from what there was in the previous period of, you know, 50, 60, 70 years. Um, so, so there's real polarization there. And I think the reasons for that, um, there's a few core reasons. Um, and I think most of them are actually economic. Um, and if you really look at, you know, the, the Trump and Sanders phenomena, a lot of them are focused on like jobs and particularly like jobs, like manufacturing jobs, millions of which have actually disappeared uh, over the past 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, and, and these are millions of jobs that were accessible to um, they're blue collar jobs. that are accessible to Americans of all stripes. That lived in what is the rough Belt and you know the industrial Midwest, um, the heartland of the proverbial heartland of America, jobs that don't require college degrees, but were able to bring home you know enough money and had enough kind of prestige that people went into this. This is what this is where they worked. Their parents worked, and where they assumed their kids would work. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, that's no longer the case, and these communities have kind of found themselves. Uh, living in extreme poverty, dealing with uh, the opioid crisis, um, and, and you know, now we have this political polarization. So uh, I think you know, what I'm, what I'm going to do first is, is try and diagnose uh, some of the reasons why these problems have uh, arose and, and really how capitalism has failed and has continued to fail to address them. Uh, and then we can kind of talk about uh, the solution of the social currency. But uh, before I jump into that, do you have any further comments or questions? I think it can be
1: a bit touch and go trying to like diagnose the causes of the issue. Cause I feel that it's, uh, complex on a cultural level. It's complex on a political level. I mean, I think a uh, generational gap plays a difference, not that generations are a particularly good way to yeah. uh, organize a group of people. I think, uh, I think, Kind of, I think moving towards uh, the flaws in the like current solutions that are being proposed is an issue. And I'd say overall, uh, to like kind of summarize uh, what was just said, would be the issue that we're discussing today is that there is a self-reinforcing wealth gap but also education gap in the united states that uh is advantageous to those who uh who have access and the people who don't are kind of hung out to dry in a way that is uh disheartening and unjust and unfair yeah and it just shouldn't be it shouldn't be uh it shouldn't be true in a quote, like in the freest country on the planet, as people like to yeah. say, which I mean, I kind of disagree with on principle, but.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think that, that was a really good recap of it. And I think also this solution is gonna be oriented to really fixing this problem for now, but also for the generations to come. Because I think, as we'll see in, in, a, in a minute when I, when I kind of jump into the underlying issues, these are problems that are only going to get larger and larger. Um, so I think with that, it's kind of a good segue talking about like, how did we get uh, really into this situation? And I think the story all comes down to the concept of embedded growth obligations. So I'm going to define that because I've been really trying to avoid uh, like just like terminology for its own sake. So, so the Let's, let's take a look at what this means. So, what okay. an embedded growth obligation would mean, for example, in the context of. Also,
1: is this is this a banism or is this uh, is this a term? Like, is this one that uh, exists?
0: It's one that exists. It's actually like I'll attribute it to Eric Weinstein. Um,
2: okay. Okay. Like I'm,
0: I'm I'm borrowing it right now. Yeah. Um, so, like, just very briefly, like, take a look at any of these structure, like, uh, in, in schools, right? If you are going to get a PhD. One professor will have 10 PhD students. Uh, so let's say, like, math and economics. So, the one, each Harvard professor will have, uh, economics professor will have, like, 10 PhD students that they advise. You know, the Harvard uh, PhD class will be, let's say, like 40 kids. Uh, same with the Yale one and the Princeton one and the Chicago and the Stanford, right? Those, those are the top five. But basically, almost all of those kids, especially when you get to kind of more and more obscure subjects like, you know, history or English literature or whatever. They all are basically looking for ideas in academia, uh, for jobs in academia, right? So what happens is all of the people um, from, from Harvard are going to try and get jobs at Harvard, but Harvard's only going to hire one or two of them because they only hire one or two new professors each year. So then they start moving down to like the tier two schools and they're looking at Northwestern and they're looking at WashU and whatever. Um, and so that's no, the, no you know, hate like, to
1: the people who go to Northwestern and Wash U. You got yeah, no, no are no Very yeah. intelligent, bright young people.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. But so, so the professors <laughs> at like these, these types of places are going to be people that got their PhDs from the Harvards and the Yales and the Princetons. And but then the people that go to Wash U and get their PhD are you know gonna they're not even gonna be looked at at a place like Harvard and really at a place like Wash U. You know maybe we'll try and hire one of our own PhD students, but. Someone from Wash U would not get a look at Northwestern. So the Wash U people end up going to teach at SLU. And, and basically this, these types of things filter down because um, in order for this, this situation to not have a crisis, there would be some type of embedded growth obligation for, for things to continuously grow. And, it, and this is true um, you know, not only in um, the university system, but it also exists in you know, management consulting or investment banking or at law firms. We'll have kind of like one partner and like 10 or so analysts. Um, and the only way that the system doesn't fail is if there's continual growth, right? And what we saw in this country from the, from the post-World War II period into the mid-1970s was actually continuous year-over-year growth of real GDP, real median income, and real worker productivity, which meant that if you started off as a law firm analyst, um, in a class of 10 people working for one partner, there would actually, that law firm would grow such that they might have three or four spots for partners. And then the rest of the people could kind of go off and start their own firms or go out and do something else because there was enough growth that actually existed in the system that could kind of support these bottom up pyramid structures. What we have had since. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's, I had never, like, I'm, I'm familiar with, uh,
1: like all the embedded hierarchies that you've mentioned, because it's something that I feel, uh, particularly uh, people with, um, quote, like professional degrees, like a law degree, yeah. uh, undergraduate business degree, like whatever the case may be, like people going into these pathways, like it's something that everyone contends with. But I'd never uh, really conceptualized it that way, that in order to maintain the hierarchies, the hierarchies must keep on growing because- yeah. Because there's, year after year, there's additional classes of analysts, and that's that, I I had never thought of it that way. That's fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I I will just continue to echo that the inspiration for uh, much of these ideas come from Eric Weinstein and and his podcast. I think um, a lot of this is kind of a little bit borrowed, a little bit of my own add-ons, and then try and, like, making it more concise and and applicable to be the background of the problem here, because we could have a whole podcast episode about embedded growth obligations and the failure of American capitalism. But I think uh, this can, this is only the introduction uh, to the solution that I'm going to kind of bring forth. But yeah. you know, basically what we saw in the period from the, 1945 to 1973 was actually this huge success. Uh, so we had real growth. And because of that, this kind of American dream where you get wealth. You, each generation is, is successively wealthier than their parents and grandparents and are provided with more opportunity, you know, just happened, it simply worked. And Americans were just materially better off on the whole, um, from 1945 to 1973. Now, what happened in the early 70s, again, we could have an entire podcast um, on like, what actually caused the phenomena to change, but basically real growth stopped in the 1970s. So like, from 1973 onwards, real median Income in the United States has not budged. Let, let me just like reiterate that the median income in the United States, adjusted for inflation, has not moved upwards in the past 50 years. At the same wow. time, our GDP and the stock market have doubled and tripled and grown at grown at incredibly high compound annual growth rates. Uh, and the so ultimate, yeah,
1: to, so Sorry. what that means to me is that wealth is getting because median is not the same as mean. Median means the middle person, in each. So that just means that wealth is being concentrated in a few
0: number of hands consistently year Bingo. after year. Bingo. Bingo. Fascinating. Uh, oh my yeah. god. What So, the hell? so, if you, Jesus. Yeah, so if you. Yeah. So if you look at what Dude, the That's, can't, that's yeah.
2: terrifying.
0: Yeah, it's terrifying. If you look at what so the Sanders campaign basically ran on, uh, and, and like for me, like I don't agree with all of the solutions that he put out but his di- his he diagnosed the problem basically to perfection like 90% of the income and wealth is is concentrated among the top like 1% of people and like more than 50% is concentrated among the top 0.1 of 1% of people right the top 1 of 1% of people have like a crazy amount of the wealth and the top 1% of people have way more than half the wealth and half the income. And the top ten percent have, I think, definitely more than ninety um, percent. I don't have all the numbers in front of me, but they're they are crazy, right? Like 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 Bezos and the Walton family just like have as much money as like a crazy proportion of, of America and, and bottom really of the like hundred
1: million or whatever. Yeah.
0: Basically like some um, some
1: terrifyingly large number.
0: Terrifying exactly, terrifyingly large. So so basically what's happened um, is that and so now i think what i want to do is i think talk a little bit about a little more about why that happened um i think there's been two main drivers um of what's kind of happened uh so so basically right we, we have the real growth kind of stopping in the 1970s but because there are still embedded growth obligations for like public corporations, right? They still need to be, grow, like that. you see the stock market, right? And so the overall to, GDP,
1: yeah. Sorry, sorry to jump in, but just to yeah. be absolutely clear on what an embedded growth obligation is, it, uh, it is these self-reinforcing hierarchies that in, order to, like, that in order to sustain themselves, they have to keep on growing larger.
0: And yes. that and, means, And yeah. the, the American society and the American economy is the same way, right? These companies, these big companies, have embedded growth obligations in them too, right? Like any big company you go to, you go to work for, uh, you know, General Motors, you start off as an analyst, there's a hundred people in the analyst class, but only like 20 people are going to become VP and like five of them are going to become managers and two, whatever it is. Like every company has these same embedded growth obligations and moreover, the stock market um, has like kind of the same thing, right? Like there's, if you take any finance class, there's the assumption that like, things are just going to be growing something like 5% a year, year over year, kind of compounded for for all of time because they just have, right? That's how it happened from 1945 until 1975. And so, you know, it was kind of assumed that that would continue happening from 1975 until 2020 and beyond. Um, But basically, because real labor productivity stopped increasing in the 1970s, the only way for companies to kind of start – continuously growing their profits, right? The profits are are what they're uh, kind of required to grow. And that's that's ultimately what's driving the stock price. The way that they uh, were able to grow profits were basically two main reasons uh, or two main ways uh, through trade and automation. So uh, I guess I'll talk briefly about both of these. So trade agreements. uh, Let's take something like like NAFTA. So NAFTA was passed in the 90s. And it's actually super interesting because both Trump and Sanders uh, came out like really harshly against agreements like NAFTA. And you might think that's very surprising given that like agreements like NAFTA were one of the very few things that like Mitt Romney and Barack Obama agreed upon. Let let me just say that one more time in, in 2008, right? Like one of the only, or I guess um, Romney was 2012, but in McCain, Romney and Obama, right? In 2008 and 2012, one of the very few agreements that both sides agreed on was free trade is good, right? Romney, which is of the course, exact Republican. same
1: agreement that the two sides, like the two now, polar opposites now disagree on.
0: It's, or, or they agree on, but they agree on the opposite. Wait, wait, so, so yeah. I'll say yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. so, so Romney, Obama agree trade is good. Now you have Sanders Trump trade is bad, right? The reason for that is because Trade is both good and bad. So let me explain how it's good and how it's bad. So in theory, an agreement like NAFTA is a positive economic boost to all of the parties that are involved in the trade agreement, right? So what NAFTA basically says is there's going to be no tariff boundaries between Canada, the United States, Mexico, and the rest of South America, right? So what that means is that now goods, like let's say cars, for example, or air conditionings, should be and can be produced in the cheapest location possible and then consume. So a few people who produce it in the high cost location, so let's say in Detroit, are going to like lose their jobs and suffer a bit. But because the car production or air conditioner production is moved to Mexico, it's going to get so much cheaper to produce air conditioners. That amount of cost savings is going to be passed on to consumers and their overall benefit is going to outweigh um, the amount that the car companies, that the, the the people who were working on the auto line in Detroit were making. And then in theory, the people in Detroit should be compensated for the government and everyone's made better off.
1: So it's, it's the idea is sacrificing a few jobs in favor of lowering the bottom line of costs pretty ubiquitously.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and this okay. is David Ricardo's theory of competitive advantage, which is mm. that each country should produce what they have. Uh, an advantage of producing, so maybe the United States would still produce some high tech elements of, let's say, cars, um, like chips or whatever. So, yeah, but like the actual manufacturing of the car itself, it doesn't need to be done in Detroit. It can be done in Mexico. It would be cheaper. Um, everyone in the U.S. would save money, and all of those savings, some of that could go to compensate. Um, you know, the, the 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 people who were working on the cars, and the rest of it would just be straight consumer surplus. So in pure economic theory, NAFTA is good. So it's good, but it's actually, the way that it works in theory doesn't actually happen in practice. So what happens in practice um, is that, yes, the car companies do go and move the jobs to Mexico, and it is cheaper for them to produce them, but they do not pass on the cost savings to consumers, because why would they? The cost savings end up going to the company's bottom line, because they need new avenues for profit in order to fulfill their embedded growth obligations, right? So these companies, again, are basically laying off tens of thousands of industrial workers in the US who so they have to pay, let's say, 60, 70, $80,000 a year for. It. Moving them to Mexico, where they only have to pay 10 or $20,000. So they basically keep all the rest of that savings for their own bottom line so that their stock continues to grow up because ultimately the companies are um, just like, their fiduciary duty is to grow their bottom line profits because they're owned by their shareholders. Um, And then, so the companies are saving these profits and then the government is not doing enough to redistribute uh, money and help out the the workers on the car manufacturing line. And if you notice, Trump in like the first 30 days in his office made a whole big thing about saving like 200 jobs at like a carrier air conditioning, Um, manufacturing plant in like rural Indiana where like they were going to move these jobs to Mexico and he was like I am going to come down your ass if you do that and this was all to save 200 jobs but the point was that he was actually going in and saying wow we took four million jobs out of Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin. We basically Bill Clinton in the 90s and then continuing with Bush and Obama literally shipped out these jobs to Mexico and then China and no one helped all these people who lost their jobs. And you can tell me that you're going to institute a job training program to teach, you know, a bunch of 50-year-old high school graduates who've been working on, you know, an industrial manufacturing line, teach them computer science, but I'm not actually going to believe you that that's actually going to work, right? You actually have to do a lot more. So trade agreements wow. have have stolen a lot of jobs from these places. So that's Without like- Without the one. added
1: benefit, which- which, to my mind, is probably a result of like the capitalist disorder. That's just well, like, yeah. Go ahead. Well, go there ahead. is
0: a lot of added benefit. The added benefit all goes to the shareholders of Ford Motor Company and General yes, Motors. because who, that's, by the, that's way, the job, and yeah. yeah, the wealthy. Because in a capitalist
1: economy, the, yeah. that's what they do. That's I, it's, You uh, can't even call it greed. That's just the way the system works.
0: Yeah. So the system works that the people who are the president in the game, president, right? Like the elite and the wealthy are the ones that own Ford Motor stock. They don't know anyone that works on the auto line in Detroit, so why not ship the jobs off to Mexico and, and you know, make the cars for cheaper, and then Ford gets a lot more profit, um, and then they get to keep the profits. So it's basically a redistribution, uh, like uh, something like NAFTA basically grew the entire economic pie, right, but it took away from the people who were already worse off and gave more to the people who were already better, better off. So it took away, let's say, $50 from the poor or, or $50,000 from the people who are poor in Michigan, but gave $100,000 to the wealthy shareholders of Ford. Now, this is a gross generalization and simplification, but this is basically what happened.
1: Because that's, I mean, well, that's, that's the goal of a competitive system, you know? The goal yeah. is, is to win for oneself. And like, even, even if someone is who, who made a billion dollars, $10 billion, whatever, even if they're going to go and, like, donate that and, like, support whatever causes that they're going to support, the fact is that's going to be less beneficial than letting someone just, like, keep their job and, like, sustain their
0: own yes. livelihood. Yeah, yeah, definitely true. Um, I'm going to keep us moving forward just because... So yes, yes, yes. yes.
2: So,
0: Let's go. So Think about that as, like, the proverbial, like, left-hand punch to the face uh so that's trade and that's by the way why there was such a big back like obama trying to pass uh tpp which is like a new big trade agreement but like literally sanders and trump both came out against it um and the us has kind of backed out of it and then trump has gone on and kind of renegotiated nafta um and it's actually something it's pretty wild that that it's it's trade has kind of done a complete 180 um from being like a an issue that everyone kind of agrees upon Uh, that it's good to now people are all of a sudden like, oh my God, we we lost all these jobs. But the right hand punch in the face, which in my view has A, had more effect maybe already, but will certainly have more effect uh, moving forward is automation. So kind of the story with automation is like much the same as with with trade, right? So like companies still need uh, to grow their profits. So whether that be their retail stores, uh, like grocery stores, or they are car manufacturing plants. Automation is a great way to save money because imagine you used to have like 15 checkout counters um, at the grocery store. Well, now you could have like one checkout counter for like special services and maybe like one person to like go around and help people if they need help or uh, check someone's ID to see if they're buying alcohol. But you could have 20 kiosks make your flow through the store much faster and have your actual upkeep costs be much lower. Same thing in factories, right? You can literally make factories. You you can have really advanced robots uh, that are just like really good at producing cars can do them at much faster rates than humans. And they cost a lot less to do. There's no upkeep costs. There's no chance they'll get injured. They can work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, And automation is just another great way to, to, to filter out jobs um, and, and drive more profit to to uh, the people who own the corporation so so again, the shareholders of Ford Motor Company or the shareholders of like you know a- any grocery store chain or retail chain that's kind of you know McDonald's or whoever it is that's kind of moving to more self-service kiosks instead of uh, people who are servicing you, it's a great way to just drive profit because again, we're saying we're in the type of period where there's no real labor productivity growth, right? Like people aren't getting better at making cars. There aren't, aren't new advancements or people aren't getting better at taking McDonald's orders. So in order for McDonald's to get more profit, um, because they're not getting more output per worker, what they could do is just reduce worker count and put in machines and the car companies can do the same thing and that will drive more profit to them. And this is going to be a massive problem as we move forward. So and to the, be yeah.
1: abundantly clear, to be abundantly yeah. clear, this doesn't mean that the people who are high up in the businesses are bad people, because in because no. in business classes, like literally, the thing that we are taught is that the number one responsibility of any public company is to the shareholders. You know, like that's yeah. that's their their it's their job to drive up profits. It's not it doesn't mean that the people who are in these roles are are monsters who don't give a shit about uh, about others who are just trying to line their own pockets like like okay maybe there might be some people like that but there's some bad people everywhere there's some great people everywhere you know it's just like yeah it's just like the way the system is structured and the system is broken not the people
0: exactly and and so what i'm ultimately going to get to in a few minutes i think it's very important to keep fleshing out these problems but ultimately what i'm going to get to is you know adding in this social currency as a way to kind of address these underlying incentive problems. But right, the people that work at McDonald's are incentivized to go and purchase the technology that can get rid of all their workers. So who's benefiting from this? Well, first of all, it's going to be the shareholders of McDonald's, right? The already wealthy group of people who own lots of stocks. Uh, Second of all, it's going to be like the technology companies who are going out and creating these, these, uh, you know, touch pad these these uh, touch only kiosks that can, uh, you know, do ordering systems, or the people that are creating and engineering the robots, or the people who are working on the 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 bond offerings to finance the purchase of these things, right? Like it's and and the lawyers who are structuring the merger and acquisition agreements, such that companies can cut out all sorts of overhead and you know str- uh, streamline their supply chains. It's basically the people that live on the coast that work in you know, law and finance and technology who are already wealthy and who they and the people that are, and, and the elites among them who already own the stocks are the ones that benefit from this. And it's the people who work at McDonald's or the Ford plant in Detroit who are going to be hurt by it. And the place that this is really going to, the point at this, where this is really going to start causing mass havoc in the U.S., um, It's actually something that like the Andrew Yang campaign was pretty focused on. And that was with truck drivers. So truck driving is an occupation that there there are literally 3.5 million truck drivers in the US and another five and mostly they're middle-aged men who do not have anything greater than high school education. And there's additional 5 million more people uh, whose work, whether they be working at gas stations or motels, roadside entertainment um mechanics, all of that who basically service truck drivers. So this is 8.5 million people, which altogether would be the single largest uh industry in the United States, are basically going to disappear in the next 10 to 20 years uh, with autonomous vehicles. Um, and autonomous vehicles are in theory going to be great, right? First of all, there's going to be a lot lot less deaths on the road, right? Because the autonomous vehicles are not going to make mistakes. But then theoretically it's just going to be a lot cheaper and more efficient. To transport things ar- across the country, but you tell me right now if you think that the cost of your produce or the cost of um, w- or your clothing is going to go down because the trucking goes the cost of trucking goes down. The answer is definitely not. Well,
1: to right? my mind, that's contrary to supply and demand, so, which is so- which is like a simply like just cause, just because supply. I mean, the supply will get cheaper, but the demand is going to stay the same. And since like, why would that like why would Why would companies charge less than they're able to, you know, it just doesn't make sense in the system. That's just not how it works The job of the company is to charge the maximum amount that they can provided the demand provided that they're selling, you know, that's the job of the company.
0: Yeah, exactly. You are like prices are sticky, especially going down. So like Coke, even if it becomes so much, even if Coke could transport some uh, something from their bottling plant, to your house for a fraction of what it costs now, they're not going to lower the price of a can of Coke, right? Like, that's, that's pretty clear, like in in economic practice. And in theory, there's a lot of sticky prices. But I mean, maybe you could argue that prices aren't going to rise as fast as they otherwise would. And we could have a whole separate conversation about inflation. But the point is, consumers will probably not benefit so much, or really at all from trucking being fully automated. But The companies that are making autonomous vehicles are going to benefit immensely. The trucking companies are going to benefit immensely. The producers and distribution companies are going to benefit immensely. And when I say that the companies are going to benefit immensely, I mean their shareholders will benefit immensely, which are already the wealthy people, where the people who are actually doing, you know, driving the trucks or working at trucker motels or trucker road stops are going to be completely shit out of luck. They're going to be be fucked.
1: There's like no other way to put
0: it. They're going to be completely fucked. And again, don't go telling me you're going to go retraining 3.5 million uh, truck drivers to be computer scientists, right? The jobs that are going to be created by the next wave of automation are going to be jobs that are accessible to people like me and you and other people who have gone to elite colleges and have these technical trainings, the people that live on the coast, the people that already have the money, but they will not be accessible jobs for the coal miners and truck drivers and their children who don't have education and don't have these types of skills but are literally they're like a deer in the headlights right now. We we are looking at 10 to 20 years out we're going to have just millions more people unemployed. People who are in stable jobs, right? Truck driving is the bedrock of tons of communities. It's the most popular job in many states in the United States and it's going to be completely wiped out. And that's not to mention what's going to happen with uh, retail workers, and, uh, you know, that's uh, millions and millions of more jobs. So I think, you know, if trade was the left-hand punch, uh, automation has been and will continue to be the, the kind of the knockout blow um, from the right hand, uh, kind of in my view. Now, I, I'm going to pause for a second and run to the bathroom, and then we can kind of jump back in one.
1: Okay, so the point we're at right now is – uh, we've discussed the factors that have led into the elimination of low skill jobs and the factors that are going to continue this trend to like an exponential degree that it's like, it's, it's something that started happening, but like, it's going to be basically finished by automation. And then that's going to, which is just going to further the issue of like concentration of a massive amount of wealth into the hands of like a few people who were already wealthy to begin with. And that's just because of the growth of big business. And I mean, I'm sure there's other issues that tie into it, which is just like big companies buying out smaller companies and then getting bigger and other things additionally. But the general problem is the elimination of low skill labor in favor of enriching a small number of existingly wealthy people.
0: Yeah yeah i think uh, I think that's a really good way of putting it and I think um the the one other thing I want to say, and it was something that was kind of uh touched upon at the beginning a little bit, but there is a real generational component to this and of course, I don't think that like being a millennial meet like you know it actually has any it, it's obviously arbitrary designations, but I think uh just some statistics that I've been looking at that I think are pretty interesting to note, so kind of as I mentioned. Uh, median real wages have not grown at all since 1973, so you know millennials cannot and should not expect to be making more than their parents. But the problem is that the costs of things that you know millennials might need, uh, things like education, education, housing, and healthcare, have continued to rise much faster than inflation as a whole. So the result of this is that millennials are actually going to be the first generation in American history who are going to be less well-off financially than their par- grandparents and grandparents. So like, some interesting things to note about that are that uh, there's going to be a combined $1.5 trillion of student debt, which is an insane number. Um, and then if you want to like look unfathomably at- Unfathomably small- insane. Like, oh, yeah, just like, insane. Like, like, yeah.
1: For people who like, can't understand what a trillion is, it was like a billion seconds ago, Obama was president. A trillion seconds ago, Jesus Christ was born.
0: That's cool. Yeah, I, that's, that's good. I like, I like that a lot. So, so yeah, that, that number times 50%. Um, moreover, uh, if you look at like real, real household wealth, uh, so um, the average millennial, I think, I'm not sure exactly what, what the age is at, but I think it's the average millennial at the age of like maybe 30 or 35 had a net has a net worth of $92,000 today. Their parents had 40% more than that. Uh, and even their, in, in 2001, so when Generation X people in 2001 were, in their thir- when they were 30 or 35, had 40% more money than millennials do. And grandparents in 1989, right? So, so baby boomers, when they were at the same age of 35 on average, had even 20% more income than, than the average millennial does now, which is quite insane, right? Like this whole American dream of each generation getting better and better, right? It has, we saw a 20% increase from Gen X over the Boomers and the Boomers over Silent was a, was was a and and the greatest and everyone before that you know was was a continuous increase and we've seen a precipitous fall for the Millennial generation right like the like the people that are Baby Boomers and Generation X are holding on to their positions longer and longer you could look at any number of metrics that, uh you know you you could just look at university presidents um who 30 years ago their average age uh, was you know, in their mid 40s, but now their average age is in their mid 60s, right? Like that's crazy. Um, like people are just holding on to power too long, um, and and the the money is not trickling down to the younger generations in the same way that used to before. Um, but you know, th- that's a whole topic for another time. But I just think is also just like something relevant to think about um, because we have we have a a, a severe problem there. So. So now let's talk a little bit about, about, about what a social currency would be. So let's talk about it, I guess, All in right. theory. Um, so, so I want to name our social currency uh, the Commer. So, uh, the what? The, the commerce. C-O-M-E-R. Commerce? The Commer.
1: Commer. Okay.
0: For a couple of reasons. Um, the first one, the, the reason why I first thought about it was community dollar. Um, but also, um, it could be spelled like Comer, which is the same thing as to eat. Uh, in Spanish. Plus, I think there's like a little funny uh, communism thing that's uh, in there, uh, like the comm- whatever. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like, well, better, better than communism.
1: But let's talk um, idea before we talk name.
0: <laughs> fine, fine. No, I, I was just kind of putting that out there as a, as a light, as a light thing. So, I so like it. Comm- I like it. Okay, yeah, I'm on right. board. <laughs> so the idea is the US dollar is meant to allocate value, is meant to go to people who create economic value right so if you create economic value you get a lot of u.s dollars but what happens if you create social value or communal value well in this country and on this planet you get nothing uh if you well i
1: mean you get you get personal fulfillment but personal sure. fulfillment doesn't put food on the table
0: exactly which is kind of why comer right to eat in spanish is kind of an important thing right like because yeah. the personal fulfillment that you get from doing really valuable activities that don't create direct transactional economic value, doesn't pay for food on the table. So to give some really good examples, I think the best one you could think of is parenting, right? If, if you stay home and parent a child, whether you're a mother or father, or both, whatever it is, you stay home to parent a child, You, it's a really important societal task, right? We need people raising children and instilling them with good values and helping to educate them and all of this. But if you do that, you get nothing. You get nothing. The government considers you as nothing. You're not working at all. Even though it's a really hard job to be a parent and a really important societal job, you get absolutely nothing for it. If you are a community volunteer, you get nothing for that, right? You go, you go work at the soup kitchen, every, you, you do whatever it is you do, you don't get shit for it. So something that- I mean,
1: it yeah. goes deeper than that. Martin Luther King, you yeah. know, Nelson Mandela, Gandhi, like all these people, the Dalai Lama, like all these people are doing what they do because not for, uh, not for a fiscal reward, but like the fact is that someone who's making a positive impact on the planet deserves to be compensated, probably more than the person who is running Facebook, for example.
2: Yeah. Or, or at least not I a shot
1: of say- Zuckerberg, just the first thing that came to mind.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree, and and this is true across like if you work for a nonprofit, right? You might make some money, but you don't, you you know that going to work for a nonprofit means you're taking a haircut in terms of you know I'm you know I'm gonna go work for this nonprofit, and therefore I probably won't be able to buy as nice a house, as nice a car, I won't be able to go as vacation, uh, as many vacations as the person who you know goes to work for the investment bank, right? And that's just something that we're okay with as a society, but I think that's something that we should not be okay with. Um, so I, I, I wanna talk about, let's use like parenting as like the quintessential example um, of like a problem that a social currency could solve. And then maybe, then I'll start talking about uh, some of like the details of how it might work and the ways in which it can kind of push society forward.
1: And to give background on parenting, there's so many households where, uh, like it's it's prevalent particularly in low income communities where like these days kids are kind of being parented by iPads because content is being put on some form of tablet and they're, they're just left there watching it because the parent has to go work the parent has to go like earn things to put food like yeah. there's just nothing to be done because yeah there's so I think parenting is a good example
0: yeah cool all right i'm I'm, I'm glad because if you thought it wasn't, I would have done something else but i um, but I, no, I'm on board. I'm well, on board. So, I mean, to be totally honest, the role of parents um, and really the role of women in parenting in particular has drastically changed in the U.S. in the past few decades. Let's say since the year like 1960 as a benchmark. And a lot of that is for good reason. I think it's a really good thing that women have been able to enter the workforce and you know succeed and excel in basically every Industry that exists. But
1: in my mind, undeniably a good thing. Just good for people, it, good for good, humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Good for
0: humanity. It's good optionality. Yes. That being said, um, I think it's important to note that there's probably something good um, about having a parent that can be home uh, and take care of the children, at least in the first few uh, years of life. I think that we can't say that it's uh, an undeni- undeniably bad thing. Um, to have a parent home. And, and maybe there's something to be said uh, for at least people having the option uh, for either the mother or the father uh, to stay home if they want to. But um, as we kind of mentioned earlier, uh, real wages have not gone up at all. And the costs of things like housing, education, and healthcare have gone up tremendously, which means that lots of families are being forced to have both parents work full-time, regardless of what their preferences are right so, like in so i might be
1: jumping a little bit ahead here but yes. why
0: uh why not universal basic income Oh, okay so so I, you're jumping a little bit ahead i i'll I, write that down we can come yeah, back to that we cool, can come back yeah to that. I, i'll 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 get into that um it's like one of the good alternate solutions i think but you know you look at 1960 and less than 25% of households relied on dual income, right? Which meant that 75% of households, uh, house, you know, parents with children uh, were able to have at least one of the parents home uh, taking care of the children. I think that having that optionality is a really, really good thing. That if one of the parents wants to stay home with their children, they can. It's also just like one of the things that is a, is a unique, uniquely meaningful experience, right, that people, can spend time with their children and raise their children. I think one of like the quotes that I that I you know have have heard pretty often is that no one on their deathbed is wishing that they spent more time at work and less time uh, raising their children at home, right? Like it should not be a good thing that the number of, of families that are reliant on a dual income has went from under twenty five percent in nineteen sixty to to over sixty percent in twenty twenty, right? Most households are reliant on a dual income in order to put food on the table. In my view, that is not a good thing, right? It's okay if some people, if some families choose that both people should work, if both people want to work, it's good that there's more optionality, but it's not good that we basically have a society where you can't make ends meet. Most people can't make ends meet with only a single income earner, and so because of that, both people have to work. And then not enough attention is being paid to raising our children. That, that, that's say one claim. What, like,
1: like say what you will about any given person's parents, it's better to be parented and to have structure as a child than it is to not. And that's just yeah. a fact, to my mind. Yeah, and,
0: and and we are talking about right now uh, two parent households, right? So sixty percent of two parent households in America have to have um, are are dual incomes in order to put food on the table. Now we can start talking about a major, major problem, which is single parent households in America. So again, I don't want to say that all single parent households are, are I'm not saying that they're automatically bad and all bad. There, there's, this is obviously going to be generalization as, as all statistics are, but I'm just going to kind of Oops. read through a couple of important statistics and then you know we can kind of discuss them and talk about the conclusions of, of what single parent households have. Yeah,
1: uh, and, what to we're can, and uh, well, to contextualize, like, and of course, neither of us, like it's very. It's an admirable thing for a single parent to, like, to do their best and to try and. Oh like, yeah. And to actively be trying right, to like. It's also just they're put into an impossible situation. So yeah, when so yeah. so bad does not mean does not it's not reflective on the parent. Bad is reflective on the situation and the outcomes.
0: Exactly. I couldn't have said that better. And after I finish kind of talking about the parenting thing, I'm going to talk about how kind of social currency could could try and uh, address some of the underlying issues here. So here are some statistics. I think it's kind of important to think about these. So in 1960, again, using that same base here, 88% of American children grew up in two-parent households. So the vast vast majority. Today, that number is less than two-thirds. So under 67%. Um, that's a pretty goddamn striking statistical change in only two generations, right? I want and you to consider the that the
1: population is growing, like yeah. notably. So that's so what, like
0: well, yeah. Well, mostly what, what this is saying is, for tens of thousands of years of human history, right? Assuming there was no major pandemics or wars, as close to hundred percent of children were born to two parent households, right? In almost every single society since humanity started its civilization. Like people grew up and there was two parents and that was the situation, right? Across the world today, even the rate of two parent households is 86%. So pretty high, much lower than probably a few hundred years ago, but right around where the U.S. was in uh, 1960, we are at somewhere in the 60%, right? That means over 30% of children are born into single parent households, which is crazy, right? That number is not above Anywhere else in the world, so we're doubling the rest of the world, tripling where we were at in 1960, and way higher than any other society in human civilization ever was, uh, as far as we can tell. Uh, so, so again, that that's just huh. you know something a bit, something we should be a bit cautious about. Um, but I don't think we can say that this experiment with single parent households has really been a success. So, so like for example. Uh, Children from single-parent households are twice as likely to drop out of high school, two two and a half times as likely to become teen mothers, and uh, one and a half times as likely to become idle, uh, which means out of work and out of school, um, as children with both parents, right? Those are some really scary metrics. In addition, children from one-parent families have lower GPAs, lower college admission rates, and poorer attendance records. Also, not good things. More And I think really probably the scariest thing that you could say um, is that single parent households uh, typically make about 30% of the income as two parent households, right? And a lot of that is because the single parent can't work in the types of jobs. Like a single parent couldn't be in most cases like a management consultant where they're traveling all the time if they have children, right? Because if you're the primary caretaker, the types of jobs you have are limited. Plus, there's the fact that a lot of single parents happen to also not have uh, you know, high levels of educational attainment, um, and because of that, are already poor in the first place. And so ultimately, the outcome of this is that 42% of children uh, who are growing up in single-parent households are poor. Uh, and that's scary, because it's only 13% across the overall population, which is also scary. But this is a number that's more than three times the, the size. So if you are born, As a child in a single-parent household, you're more than three times as likely as other children in two-parent households to be growing up in poverty. So those are some really scary, massive statistics.
1: So, and there are people who would be of the perspective that, like, they just need to work harder, or like, just some like statements along those lines. And to my mind, that's untrue because they're put into an impossible situation where they need to provide for themselves but they also need to and it's it's a it's like a biological desire to do right by your children like that's what that's what we want to do and so to be put in a position where they can't must be so hard like like unbelievably like it's just terrible it's like a terrible thing to think is happening and happening on the scale that it is like I would have had no idea like these things like yeah. this is news to me honestly yeah it's
0: it's it, it's terrifying and I'll, I'll say kind of one more stat about parenting that's also a little bit terrifying so you know we're using 1960 as the base here uh you want to take a guess at what the uh birth rate for women was in 1960 uh what does birth rate for women mean like how yeah. many children does the average woman have uh in her lifetime? year 1960? I don't know. Two? Uh, so the answer is 3.65, which is quite high, but also uh, healthy for growing society. Uh, what do you think it is now? Four. <laughs> 1.77.
1: Okay, I was just throwing it so, yeah, out there. No, I have you're, no idea. You're, you're, totally,
0: you're totally good. Um, <laughs> I, I, I also was kind of shocked by these numbers. <laughs> But what this is basically saying is that... Wait, so we're United- having...
1: Well, that's probably a good thing. Honestly, no, I, feel like, I feel like...
0: It's not a good thing because what it means Because aren't we, are, we having
1: population problems?
0: Yeah, we're having population decline in the United States of America. Uh, yeah, right, is that an
1: issue? I thought it was bad the population was growing too much.
0: So I'll explain why the population decline is very bad uh, with like a pretty simple example. Like, Think about the number of old people that there are now, right? Or right? Think about, or even think about our generation, right? Imagine if we all have one kid. How are we going to support? How is that one kid going to support four grandparents,
1: right? How's that one? Oh, facts. And two parents, right? We, we, we're going to well, have. I mean, the older generation does have the benefit of having social security, which like.
0: It's going to run out. It's going to run out for going to start running out for our parents and it's definitely going to run out for us but if oh, we are 100%, all, 100 percent, yeah we've yeah. got no shot <laughs> so so if we have one kid right how are we who's going to pay for us how, how are we going to survive right as a generation because um, because right now we are not producing enough working age people uh because people aren't having enough children So we're not producing enough working age people. So there's not enough money that's going to go into the social security system and the tax system. uh, And we're going to be completely fucked. Um, In fact, the only reason why this country isn't experiencing population decline right now is because of immigration. But if you look at what's happening in Japan or what happened in Japan and what's going to happen in China, they're going to be running into these same problems um, just because they they flattened their population way too much. And now because life expectancy is, is longer than ever before, um, there's just not going to be enough young, productive, working people to support old people. And it, it's a real, real problem. Because if you have a whole group of people who are 70s, 80s, and 90s and not working, but that you don't have enough productive people in your 20s and 30s working, then you're simply going to have massive societal issues. So I, I think... I don't want to say, I mean, I could, we could continue talking about parenting problems with, you know, uh, you know, parents and children uh, in the country, but I think uh, now is kind of the time to start turning the corner and talk about what a social currency could do. Um, so is that, is that something that's interesting for you?
1: Um,
0: or do you want to ask more, more, any more like questions or kind of backdrops? So because I think kind of talking about parenting and then we can kind of apply it to uh, non-profit work or other types of things if you want to so
1: I have like a pretty solid sense of what uh, You what social currency means, but I don't think we've outright given a definition for it yet So I think there'd be benefit in doing that and cool. to My mind well, like let me say what I understand it is and then you can maybe uh, make tweaks yeah. But based off the description. It's just uh, It's It's money, I guess that's allotted to people for fulfilling the things that we as a society need done. And that can be parenting. That can be, uh, how far does it go? Do yeah. people who, well, well, okay. So there are certain industries that I think uh, propel culture, but are financially rewarded like art and like music. Yeah. And those okay. are, those yeah. are, those are social industries and social, uh, like, to me, those are those are more of cultural impact than of economic impact. But then again, I do think, uh, like, black culture is one of America's biggest exports and is ubiquitously undervalued by, uh, I don't know,
0: by people year after year. So, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So, okay. Uh, I will. So, okay. So, we will address some of those details. Like art and music, because th- those are the types of things that I've been struggling with myself. But basically, your definition of social currency is right, right? It is the same as dollar currency, right? Dollar currency is allocated to those who produce direct transactional economic value. The social currency, the, the, the commerce, will be allocated to those who produce a communal and social value. Um, so okay, what but, like- what if,
1: but what if I am like... Like if I'm the best parent to ever live and like I'm going to every sports game, like like parent teacher conferences, like I'm just killing yeah. it as a parent. Yep. Do I get do I get like enough commerce to like buy like a Lamborghini?
0: Yeah. So, how many okay, so do um, I get and how do you so, qualify? Um, yeah. You know? Okay, okay. So now, now we're getting into the into the into the nitty gritty details and I'm glad to kinda walk through my thinking uh here. So let's let let's let's talk about how it might work with parents. I think Um, we can allocate a certain number of commerce for anybody who is is the primary caretaker for children. Done. End of story, right? Like, I I, I don't, we'll talk, we can and should talk more later about how exchange rates might work and how much money will be allocated. I don't want to put an exact number on it right now. That was another question of
1: mine. The exchange rate between commerce and dollars.
0: So, okay. So I, I want to get into is it that in Like, So no, I'll, I'll get into it in like <laughs> in like 30 seconds. But first, what I'll say is I don't want to put an r- exact something on it right now. Basically, I want to say, you know, we, we pick a number. Um, the federal government could create like some kind of bureaucracy or administration that would set out these guidelines uh, and say, you know, if you are the primary parent of a children, you get the equivalent, you, you get, one thousand commerce a year or ten thousand pick the number, uh, whatever it is that that, that, will be, that will be the number it is, and everyone who is the primary caretaker of a children of a child will get that amount. Um, end of story, I think that will do wonders for the first of all, what that will do is that will encourage more people to have children, I think in the first place. I think a lot of people put off taking children because they 're worried about they, it will be too hard to support them economically. Um, they don't want to take a backseat in their careers or they're the types of families that just don't would, wouldn't have enough money if they didn't do, have a dual income. So I think the government should should determine an amount that would be worthwhile so that one parent can kind of stay home and take care of them. Or if you're a single parent household, you know, maybe it wouldn't be enough to support you fully, uh, but it would be like a, a, a good amount of money to fully take care of the child and like be an extra incentive to you. Uh, so like maybe you'd have to do some part-time work on the side, but it should be a significant amount of money.
1: Um, and and we'll talk more
0: about how that might be decided.
1: So I do kind of have issue with, uh, with incentivizing, um, like being a parent earlier than one is ready. Cause to my mind, that's unfair to kids. Because someone who's born to parents who are not like ready to parent is going to suffer as a result and is going to have a hard time, and I think that's yeah. unfair to children. I think that's unfair to children. So I don't think that's necessarily uh, like I like well, I like I'll, where the idea is coming from, but in practice, like I don't know if that's like super functional. I guess well, the real question I'll, is why yeah. is this why why is this like why not universal basic income? Okay. Why is it, so, why so is this me, better?
0: I'll, I'll answer your first question first. Then I'll answer the second question. So, um, the reason why, so, so, okay. I'll answer actually the first question first, which was, uh, the worry about, uh, people having children too young. You can tell me maybe I'm wrong. I don't think anyone is going to be like, Oh yeah, I'll have a child. I could get a little bit more money a little earlier. Like, I don't think people are going to be going out of their way to have children if they otherwise wouldn't have, um, if it wasn't for this system. So that's, that's, I think, something that's important.
2: So we, we just both moved inside, uh, dealt with some technical difficulties, and it was getting a bit colder. Um, but I think basically what I was saying was I'm not so worried that anyone is going to be having children earlier because of this money. And in terms of whether or not it should be incentivized, look, I think having a child is like a monumental decision. Uh, and what I don't want to happen is for children to be disincentivized because people are worried that they're not going to have enough income to support it or because they're worried that it's going to put their family in devastating economic circumstances. So what I want to do is alleviate the suffering of single parent households and allow families where right now they have to have two parents working in order to support the children to allow one of those parents to stop working and become a primary caregiver uh, in order to um, not have to, you know, worry about putting food on the table. But then yeah, I can answer the second question if you want. But, yeah.
1: No, I mean, that's totally fair. I just was I just was uh, stating what I feel like could potentially be a concern.
2: Okay. Yeah, that's very fair. But I, I think I'll address your second question because now is a really good time. Because
1: that, that, that yeah. one I actually, that one I do, uh, that's that's like a real question, like, for me. Like, yeah. that I have. Like, why why is this better than universal basic income? Because yeah. I do believe in universal basic, yeah. basic income.
2: So, I like UBI. I think it's good. I think that there are better schemes than UBI, specifically negative income tax would be a better scheme than UBI to kind of accomplish the same goal, which would basically only give, basically only UBI for for uh, people making under a certain amount of money. Um, I think like if we're going to do any type of UBI, it should be either a capped UBI or a negative income tax. But the reason why I think, think social credit is better is for this one reason. Uh, so we, we just talked about parenting as an example, but like now, let's, let's kind of harp back to, um, you know, those people that work in the industrial Midwest. Um, you know, they got laid off from their factory. They're producing furniture. They're producing air conditioners. They're producing cars, right? You could have them sit at home and, you know, get, send them a check for $1,000 a month every month. Sure, you could do that. Um, but what I would argue is that that would not give them a particularly satisfying or fulfilling existence. But instead, what you could do is say, look, it's not, our com- it's not to anyone's competitive advantage for you to go to the factory and produce cars, right? Like, it's simply going to be produced cheaper in Mexico. But there are city streets that have trash all over them. There are roads and bridges that need to be paved and built. Um, there are community centers that need to be staffed. There are, right, there are all of these societal things. I get it. Right? So basically, what we want to tell these people is, Right now, you know, going to do these types of things does not get you paid or gets you paid very little, but because it is providing community value, you know, we are going to subsidize these professions with a significant amount of commerce, right? Or community dollars, right? So basically, and any type of nonprofit work, right? Like right now I have a decision, right? I could go work in private equity and make X amount of money, or I could go work for a nonprofit and make X minus a lot amount of money. Right, but if you told yeah. me I could go work for a nonprofit and make X minus a lot of money, but I'm going to get that compensated in another form of currency, then maybe my decision calculus will be a little bit different. So I think that, th- and if you told me I get a universal basic income, well, if I'm going to get that either way, then why does it really matter, right?
1: That because um, I'm not saying universal basic income incentivizes doing nothing, but this idea incentivizes doing good things. So like, quick- I actually. Yeah, yeah I, actually, I actually kind of am on board. So it's like yeah. if you lose your job and you want to make money, then go like, make a positive impact on the world. And, yeah. like, and that's something that people can do like, regardless. Yeah. And, and, like homeless yeah. people can do. It takes no training. Just go spread. I, I actually really like this idea. Yeah. I actually, yeah. You got me on board now. I really like this idea.
2: Cool. Okay, so, so I think some of the logistics are really what – Uh, I mean, interests me a lot, like the the way that I kind of see it working, uh, because you asked a few questions. So the first question is you asked about kind of the exchange rate. And what I want to say is what the US government should do is say, this is legal tender, right? The commerce is now a legal tender. And every business on the in the in the country is Required to accept the commer in the same way they're required to accept a nickel or a penny as legal tender, right? Like there are a lot of businesses that might not want your coins, but they are legally required um, by the U.S. government to take your coins in the same way they'd be required to take the commer. The second thing about the commer is that I would mandate, or not mandate, I would just provide um, the option for anyone at any time to trade in one commer for one U.S. dollar if they want. Which means that the exchange rate uh, is going to be one comma is worth at least one U.S. dollar always, no matter what, right? I and it cannot – yeah.
1: well, I can't speak at all to the implications of creating a new currency. Like, I have no idea how that would work from, like, a government standpoint. Like, I can't even fathom how that would work. So, like – So, like, I can, can – Like, can you – like, because – because what confers it? Ba- I mean, things have value because, like, we give them value. Like at this yep. point, nothing backs up the value of a dollar besides the fact that, like, we have assigned value to a dollar. Yeah. So, like, that just like could we just print, like,
2: yeah. Well, like, well, could we, we literally
1: just print this new money and like yeah. have this and then be like, hey, this is new money. Like, yeah, like, go spend it.
2: <laughs> so basically, like the Fed um, and the federal the federal government as a whole in the past few weeks has. Uh, just printed trillions of dollars out of nowhere. In fact, they've printed more money than the entire money supply. Uh, th- they've printed more money in the last month than the entire money supply that existed in the year two thousand seven, uh, which is insane. Um, but that is insane. So, so they they can do that if they want to. Um, but what would else? that
1: drive down the value of a dollar?
2: Well, okay. Well, theor- theoretically, theor- yes, it's called it would be inflation. Um, yeah, but
1: it, does it count as inflation if it's a different currency?
2: So, okay, so I'll explain kind of the mechanism that I'm, I'm thinking for it. So first of all, I think the currency should be introduced on the blockchain, just because I think that's best practice, because I think that the US dollar will eventually go digital and be on a blockchain also. right? eliminates all fraud, eliminates all these types of issues. Um,
1: yeah.
2: other aspects, Not a bad idea. Yeah, other aspects of the commerce that I think are important is that they'll be tax-free, Right. So like you don't have to pay taxes because you're doing a social good, um. So jobs that work right. So another. So it's almost better
1: than dollars.
2: Well, I mean, it, it could be better than dollars, but maybe we're not going to give you as much. And and here is the really interesting self-regulating mechanism that I've kind of thought about. Um, is that kind of like like the Bitcoin protocol, like on the blockchain? There's a certain amount of commerce that's going to be created each year that the government. Maybe we'll create a range. Um, maybe they say perhaps something like uh, you know, 5% of GDP, um, not including government spending, is gonna be created in terms of you know, physical commerce uh, year after year. Um, and then people will in effect like, mine commerce or like, in, in the same way that you'd mine Bitcoin off a of blockchain, you would acquire commerce by like, raising a child or doing community service. Or, um, you know, I think there are a lot of other ways that, a lot of other things that we can help um, you know, society. Like for example, we could, like the, the government of Detroit could, um, could say, we are going to give a 5% Commer rebate to anyone who buys a Detroit made car. Anyone in America buys a Detroit made car, they get a 5% rebate in Commer. Now, the way that this works, is that the governments of Detroit and every other small lo- and locality, so town and locality in the country, will bid for the right to buy commerce from the federal government, right? So the federal government says, we are going to create a pool of, let's make it easy number, right? Federal government says, we're going to create uh, 100 billion commerce this year, right? That's what we're going to create. Not, not so crazy, right? They printed $4 trillion in a month. So this is, let's say there's 100 billion commerce this year.
1: Sounds reasonable. Yeah, Yeah.
2: sounds reasonable. Detroit says, you know, we really want to make a lot of people buy American cars. We're going to buy a billion commerce from the federal government for a billion dollars or whatever it is. Or we're going to put up a bid to try and buy commerce such that we can offer the rebate in commerce to everyone in the country for buying an American car. And then they'll all buy American cars and things will be good for business and we'll get more tax revenues, and we'll use those to buy the commerce, dot, dot, dot. The city of New York might say, we want a lot of, we have trash all over the place. We're gonna just incentivize homeless people to, we want homeless people going around picking up trash, so we're gonna give out free trash bags, and if you come back with, at the end of the day, with a full trash bag, we're gonna give you 10 commerce, and hopefully homeless people will go around collecting trash um, from the streets, and come back with commerce um, and they would do that. Uh, You you could think of any number, you could think of, for example, I think the prison system would benefit from this. Like right now, people in prison are basically being paid like, you know, starvation wages to like make stoop, make whatever needs to be made in the state. But like, I think we could start it off and do some type of commerce system that people in prison who are doing community service or rehabilitation work, um, you know, they might not be creating direct economic value such that they'll get a lot of U.S. dollars, but instead we can give them commerce if they're, you know, going in, and, and um, you know, do, doing productive things for themselves or for society. We could also think about instituting some non-mandatory but uh, optional community service on a state, local, and federal level for anyone that turns 18 can enroll in this program uh, and and take one year and do national community service like they have, in tons of other countries, whether that be like joining the army or doing teach for America or joining the peace corps or doing whatever it is. And again, you might not be creating direct economic value, So we're not going to give you dollars, but instead we're going to give you commerce. Um, and that's going to help you start and get like a kind of a nest egg, um, to like move forward in your life. So, so that those are some of the mechanics that I think about. And then in terms of the exchange rate, it's going to work with supply and demand, right? So really, if a lot of, gov- if the government of Detroit is like, we're willing to spend, you know, $10 billion to acquire these commerce that we're going to use, um, then it will be, uh, I, I mean, look, look, theoretically, they could say, the government of Detroit could say, we're going to give everyone a, a, a rebate in US dollars, um, if you buy an American car, but I think um, it will be like a unique feature of the commerce that like states will have access to, from the federal government to this specially, th- this currency that's specially marked for um anyone doing anything to benefit the broader community in america
1: first of all, it's surprisingly well thought out
2: oh thank you thank you like logistic I, I, like yeah.
1: like like i don't mean surprisingly in the sense that like it is surprising that that um To me, it's just shocking that you thought about the details so well, because that's something that, like, I struggle with. Like, I tend not to be particularly detail-oriented, and that's something that I try and work on. But, like, it really does sound, like, surprisingly feasible to my mind.
2: Yeah, I mean, in terms of the bureaucracy that we have in the government, it would not be hard at all on the federal level to create an administration that just kind of figured out what the exact right number would be and what the right proportion would be and and figured out the block. Like it just wouldn't be that hard to do. And then it wouldn't be hard to determine like, okay, you know, we should give X amount of money for parents. We should give Y amount of money for, you know, prisoners or X amount or Z amount of money for people doing the, you know, national community service. And then the local level, this would make really a lot of sense and would kind of help prevent fraud. Like, let's say there's a local community that really likes, you know, art or music or, or something like that, right? You can give commerce to people who, um, and you could have like pretty good fraud detection because it's on the ground locally. Like you, if you perform at a free uh, concert in the park, right, you would get like, you could get commerce from the state or like if you have an art exhibition or something, like w- whatever it is, you can you can figure out mechanisms uh, to get this. And I think it's just a really good way of of saying like, it's obviously not economic, right? The dollar is for attributing economic value. This will be for attributing uh, value like non-economic things. Um, and then you can spend your commerce on economic goods but also on non-economic goods. Uh, and you can always transfer it to the government for economic goods if you want it.
1: So to my mind, the biggest struggles would be uh assigning value to different actions and because yeah. social goods and and defining social good
2: you because yeah. like there's like local communities though i would just say each local community can appoint a bo- like you know there's community boards for basically everything like every local level there's you know tons of people who are involved in uh deciding uh you know which roads should be paved and like what we should you know if the school should, you know, do this or that. Um, one of the things they can also just work on is like figuring out this allocation. And I think the federal government can and should give like basic guidelines and then individual communities can kind of see what they're like, they're like, oh, our parks really could use like a lot of new trees planted and can be like gardened. like we wanna incentivize people to do that. And like each locality would have some type of budget for social good that they'd get from the government And then like you could, like I was saying, Detroit could choose to kind of purchase more if they're interested in doing like a national program to try and, uh, you know, get people to uh, uh, buy, buy their cars. So
1: I would love to see this in practice. I would like, I think that would be just like a super interesting experiment. I just, like I have no idea if it would work, you know?
2: Yeah, I mean, me neither, ultimately. But I I think I was just kind of proposing another idea. I think no one or not enough people in this country are thinking out of the box. And we have real and severe problems. Um, And I think when most people bring an idea to the table, it gets digested kind of in this pretty black and white way. Like, oh, it's like a left-wing idea, or right-wing idea. But like, I am trying to bring up a new idea that is neither, that can be claimed neither by the people on the left nor by people on the right. Um, but yet appeals should appeal to a whole host of different people. And I think that's kind of the only way that we're going to be able to move, you know, society forward is by really, uh, by, by thinking about kind of creative solutions, uh, to, to solve problems like this. Like I haven't seen this proposed by any of the, big left-wing or right-wing think tanks like those places are just running years behind um and they're they're focused on status quo and they're not focused on uh you know trying to come up with new and creative ideas
1: well it does seem like that government is the only place in society where we like don't approve of trial and error where it's like not okay to have an idea that fails you know like there like there should be some forum for for testing things,
2: local, Cause level. Like,
1: yeah. Because I actually like I do believe that this could work. I believe that. Yeah. You Dark know, n- like n- it, it, it's, yeah. It sounds like a, it sounds like a good idea. It sounds like, and like 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 government experiments don't need to be like a communist revolution that overthrows the government. Yeah. Like why? Like why can't it just be like like? Yeah. Why can't it just be like a small community that's like, hey, like we're gonna try this idea of. Uh, incentivizing social good, yeah. And to see what happens. Like, I think, yeah. I think that would be like such a big step in the right direction.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and I think the
1: idea of incentivizing, like, social good is just a wonderful idea. I think it's just amazing.
2: Yeah, I mean, and ultimately, uh, you know, the, the only other things that I really had to kind of add on this idea that that still needed to be fleshed out were like more, more tight, Like, this would just incentivize. Uh, kind of more pro bono work, um, it could be a great way for for our country to kind of get uh, our infrastructure like our our roads and our bridges and our ports like to the forefront of of the world. Uh, it could help you know increase childbirth rate. it could help um, people you know who are trying to pursue their creative dreams in art or music or or in other kind of those areas you know help them uh, do that as well um, and also just like kind of provide. Uh, like a safety net and and provide more fulfilling opportunities for people to for for people to pursue where they can create high impact and then also not have to sacrifice um economically to do for doing so and so really, the rest of the stuff I had left was kind of you know talking about how we should roll this out uh, as a beta test in you know maybe one in a city, a suburban area, and a rural area and kind of see where that test goes after you know five or ten years and then Uh, you know, think about doing it on a more national level. And really, ultimately, the local levels and the states were meant to be laboratories for testing out new ideas. And the problem that we have in this country is that we've become this one behemoth-like system of 350 million people. And it's like, all right, now now everyone is going to do this, and now everyone's going to do that. And it just doesn't make sense, because people in suburban Scarsdale have much different uh, much different, uh, views and, and values and needs than people 20 minutes away in New York city, not to mention people miles and miles away in rural Missouri. And that should be so clear, but yet we are trying to create like this one system with a behemoth federal government, uh, that's like in charge of everything. And in my view, kind of, as I said, like we need to start experimenting and doing more and more things on local levels to figure out what works and what doesn't work.
1: To my mind, that also is just how like people figure things out, you know. Like you try yeah. things, and then it doesn't work. And it's like okay, let's fix it a little bit, and then see yeah. if that works now. And so I think the fact we can't do that probably is gonna cause some real problems if we don't like learn to.
2: Yeah, and and I think when people say like, you know, there's our our economic and governmental system is failing. Um, you know, people are like oh, anti-American, this or that. It's like no, it's like it's so evident that there are real issues, and we don't need to blame it on a boogeyman. And like, you know, we don't need to say it's all the fault of the wealthy people, or it's all the fault of the people from this other country. Like, no, there's a there's a variety of factors, um, and we discussed a lot of them earlier, right? That's what we spent the first half of this podcast talking about, um, and then we talked about all these applicable situations, right? We went in depth into parenting, but we could talk about. Uh, we could talk about nonprofit work for for a while we could talk about prisoners we could talk about 18 year olds um, and creating some kind of national service program we could talk about environmentalism
1: in, yeah you know, we could talk about like there's 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 a slew of social issues that people are passionate about yeah you know you could gender divide gender equality racial equality like there's yeah. just so like there's so many like social issues that are prevalent That deserve that there should be some incentive that for people to address them besides like it being exclusively intrinsically motivated because that's just unfair to the people who are trying to make the world a better place it's just Uh, truly unfair and the question that came to my mind for like a little bit was like if this existed then why would anyone want to like work at mcdonald's and the answer is that the whole point of this is because people aren't going to be able to work at McDonald's anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. like it, it really just, to me, it really yeah. just makes sense. Yeah.
2: So, yeah. I, and I, I think you really hit that was, that was kind of how I was going to close, which is like, as we move forward, the low skill jobs are going to continue to be automated away. Right. And so we need to think of some transitory system, right. Cause I think in a hundred years, legitimately in a hundred years, most people are not going to be working. And that's OK. Right. Hopefully, if everything goes well, most people will not have to work in 100 years. And, and we can talk about how that will happen and what society will look. I mean, we've talked about it kind of in previous podcasts before, but we need to be thinking about what are we going to do in the next 10, 20, 30 years as millions and millions of more jobs are actively automated away? How do we create structure for these people? How do we deliver um, currency to these people such that they can put food on the table? Um, without you know, disrupting all the other progress that could be happening in society? And that's ultimately the real question.
1: So, and I actually do think that there are people who would still want to be like a computer scientist. Yeah. You know? Like yeah. I don't think this would, like I think, like I think yes, people would probably prefer to have like socially impactful jobs than to have like menial jobs but yeah like, i do think like i don't think this is going to get rid of people who want to be like corporate lawyers or engineers like i think i think it's just like like i don't think it's going to break down i don't think adding additional uh incentive structure would break down what we have built
2: yeah i i agree i don't think anyone is going to say like oh you know i want to pick up trash on the street instead of being a corporate lawyer, I I think that maybe it will be, I want to work for a nonprofit instead of being a corporate lawyer or something, something like, like those kind of changes could happen. Um, But also they'll still be as many corporate lawyers are needed because then right. If if, it, then. Just because not
1: everyone is socially motivated.
2: Yeah. But this will give people a, a bigger social motivation and B will give them, the economic driver to like take that leap and do the thing that they're socially passionate about. And, and then we could see how passionate these people really are about social, social things.
1: Ben, I have to be honest. I'm actually surprised how on board I am.
2: Huh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm glad to hear.
1: Really good idea. Thank you. Like, like well thought out on so many different levels, like really just impressive.
2: Yeah, I I really, I it really speaks that. to you
1: like speaks to you that you took the time to like actually flesh this out. Like go oh, like who? I really do not know. I think anybody else who's thinking about the political system in the same way that you are and I think that is something that's so special.
2: Yeah, I I, I appreciate I'm, that. I'm
1: no, I'm blown away. I'm actually blown away. Like and I'm not just saying that. Like I really like 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 I could go and take this idea and talk to people about it. Like I really love this idea.
2: Cool. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely spread it. I mean, I think it's something that I have been thinking about for a while. um, And I've been thinking about like, you know, negative income tax and universal basic income for like a while. And it was kind of cool to see it on the center stage a little bit like, you know, this year, but who knows, maybe in like four or eight years, people are going to be seriously talking about doing something like this also. So I think, um, you know, write a paper. Yeah, maybe I'll like, maybe like, I'll, like, like,
1: no, like like write a paper. Like I actually <laughs> think that this could have legs, like like
2: <laughs> Maybe I'll write. Push it. No, I'll write like genuinely,
1: up. like I'm on board.
2: <laughs> yeah. Perhaps I'll write something up. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been working, I've been like sketching out like kind of outlines, so it wouldn't be so hard to uh to put into paper form, but honestly, you know, what one of the reasons why I was super into the idea of starting this podcast was because kind of as I told you, like I was started blogging during first semester senior year. Uh, but i I ultimately recognized that talking and doing long form podcasting was a much better way for me to get my ideas out there uh, much faster than writing and just a lot more pleasurable um, but nonetheless, I think maybe this one could be a keeper maybe i 'll maybe i 'll write something up about it
1: This one I think warrants some writing like i think I think like the rules for life like I thought that was like I thought that lent itself very well to a podcast, and I think this did too, but I also think that in order to actively, like, reach the people who it would need to reach in order to make a change. Like, it would probably need to take the form of some kind of academic paper.
2: Yeah, yeah. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll write it up and, and see what I can do with it.
1: I also am curious to see, like, like, I hope people listen to this and then reach out to you and, like, like give you more uh, criticism. Because to my mind, I really... Like, I'm kind of on board. Yeah. Well, the,
2: <laughs> the funny thing is I spent most of my time thinking about, like, I was thinking about, like, how much should we be doing for this and that? And what is the bidding system going to look like? And what are the currency exchanges? That kind of matters price. less. You yeah. know? No, it, it, yeah, it matters a little bit less. Um, but ultimately, like, I recognize, like, wait, first of all, the important thing is we should leave it up to the local communities to create, like, boards that can make those decisions right? And, and assign those values. Like, I don't need to have a 100% complete comprehensive solution. That's going to say, this is how much this should be worth. And this is how much that like, I don't need to well, do that. That's just
1: not like, like pricing isn't static.
2: Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. So
1: why this, why would this need to be?
2: And, and the cool thing about this is that it can be adjusted, right? Like if it works really well, and like, everyone picks up all the trash, but then it turns out that like, there's a whole other issue, like the beach needs to be like, we need more sand or less sand, or like there needs to be more trees now. Then, like, we can just change the incentive and be like, oh, now trash, instead of getting you 10 comers gets you uh, like eight. And then, like, less people will do that because we're raising the price of tree, right? Like, it will just keep yeah. itself out.
1: And then, and then you just hand out like seeds to people. You hand out like seeds and shovels and say, like, hey, go plant these trees yeah. and like bring back some kind of proof that you planted these take trees. A and then you take a picture. Yeah. Yeah i'm really like i'm actually like very much on board
2: yeah like cool like,
1: shocking like <laughs> like shockingly on board
2: cool well well hopefully you'll, you'll sleep it over and uh when you figure out what what more flaws are we th-
1: <laughs> well yeah i mean i'll <laughs> think about it i'll let you know if anything comes to mind but like i really think this is worth like disseminating at least a little bit
2: yeah cool. i mean i mean and that's like what we're doing
1: here but like i also okay. think like like I think like there would be worth in like writing an academic paper on the implications of it.
2: Yeah. And kind of like I'll, floating uh,
1: that to people who would be like interested.
2: Yeah. I'm um, I'm uh, um, I mean, I'll think about that as well. I'll think about writing something up and then maybe sending a draft uh, to a professor or or someone. Um, yeah. I mean, course, if you
1: want me to read yeah. anything over, of course, always send it yeah. my Yeah. Way.
2: yeah. No, <laughs> I, I appreciate that. And and to all the, the listeners and viewers, I hope uh, you guys also think this is, an interesting, compelling idea, or at the very least, that the problems that are identified—that um, we kind of identified and talked about at the beginning—are um, like interesting and relevant problems because I think they are, and it's a crucial time to kind of face them. So, so hopefully, this uh, provided some like different, uh, unique insight.
1: Well, and that's also not to say that there wouldn't like it wouldn't be like a logistical challenge because of course it would be, but the yeah. fact is that like you can't figure out the logistics until it's actually being attempted somewhere, you know? Because, like, you can hypothesize about logistics all day long, but, like, you'll never know until it's actually, like, being worked out a little bit. So I would love to see this attempted.
2: Yeah, and the one more thing that I guess I'll say is, if anyone's, like, worried about how this would actually work, just for, like, frame of reference, the federal government printed in the past month and a half, again, literally they, they pledged to create $4 trillion in a month. Um, like the, the Fed plus the government created an unprecedented stimulus that altogether was more than five times the size of the entire 2008 bailout. And that has all been going down in the past month. And the world has not crashed. Plus, that's not to mention that they dropped interest rates to zero. And half of the Western world, including most of Europe, has interest rates. Uh, it, at Europe and also Japan has negative interest rates. So there are all sorts of you know, economic concepts um, that are happening that are completely bonkers and much, much more kind of outlandish uh, than this, or at least seemingly so that, that are currently happening. Like the Federal Reserve of the United States is buying corporate bonds today. And that is insane because that is, that is completely unprecedented. Um, so I think, you know, our financial system has clearly way more flexibility Uh, than previously imagined. And if the people in charge, i.e. the people at the Fed and the Treasury kind of decide they want to try something new, uh, like purchasing corporate bonds or trying out negative interest rates or doing quantitative easing or anything else, you know, they kind of have the ability to do so. So I think, you know, in that respect, uh, it's definitely not an infeasible solution.
1: Can I also just mention that what a disgusting amount of paper four trillion dollars must yeah. be like well, what a well, waste most,
2: most of it isn't being actually printed i would uh, hope not yeah i
1: would really hope but not.
2: most of it is just adding a couple zeros to excel spreadsheets uh at the fed that the banks holds but yeah psycho
1: that's psycho a, that's what that's what our money
2: is that's what our money it is. goes on a computer <laughs> it goes on a computer and it's literally they add zeros yeah but it's crazy <laughs> and
1: if they can well, do that why bad. can't they, yeah why can't they just add a new currency i'm on board yeah. i like yeah. this idea
2: yeah, cool. Uh, <laughs> this is this is the grand. first
1: like like this is the first time uh, we've had one of these like kind of like big scope ones, and I just was fully sold. But this one, I'm actually sold on.
2: <laughs> nice. Okay, I'm glad to hear. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, uh, thank you everyone for for joining us for having lunch. Hopefully, this wasn't too long, even though this was a pretty uh, dense topic. But I think we did pretty good moving through it, especially once we got to the solution stuff. So. Yeah. Cool. All right.